Um, so, you know, I say B2B is dead, B2C is dead and B2H is where it's at, which is business to humans. This is the podcast where we go around the globe to interview marketing leaders from the world's biggest brands, fastest growing companies and most disruptive startups. Great ideas packaged a certain way want to spread. They want to be told to someone else. This is simple, surprising and significant. Viral creativity is to make it rapidly scalable. This is Top CMO with me, Ben Kaplan. Today on Top CMO, I'm chatting with Melissa CMO of Avanti. That's the company that automates and manages your IT and security operations from wherever your employees are working. Melissa is the former CMO of Avid, known for its professional high-end video editing software, has a high-energy results-oriented CMO, one who always relishes a good branding challenge. The year is 2020. It's in the fall. We're in the height of the pandemic, really. You take a new job as CMO of Avanti. And what's the first thing you do when you're coming to CMO? These extraordinary times. Um, it's a company that's had some success. They want to have more success. What is the first thing you do? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it was a, an interesting time to take a new job as a CMO, but uh, I never shy away from a challenge, okay. uh, even more complex than the you know what we were going through in the fall of 2020. Um, Avanti was going through a pretty major transformation at the same time. Uh, the company was going through a significant acquisition strategy. So we went overnight, literally, from a $450 million company to over a billion dollar company by doing four acquisitions essentially at the same time. So after I realized that was happening, I was like, what am I doing? Why did I take this job? No, actually, it was the opposite. That's pretty much why I, I took the job because I was really excited about the opportunity. So one of the first things we did, as you can imagine, having a melting pot of four companies come together into one, mm-hmm. uh, our employees that joined the company, again, you know, tripling in, in size overnight, um, all had their own point of view of their mission and their purpose uh, from the companies they were coming from. And what I had to do, my first mission as a CMO was to establish a brand purpose, something that we could all rally around as one organization driving towards one common purpose as, as, as a company. So, so, not, so at that point, yeah. it's not even, it's not even outward facing or anyone for your audience or your clients or your customers or anyone. It's just to align. Yeah. And, and were there significant conflicts? Was there things that didn't fit between the companies? Well, I think that it was strategic acquisitions, right? So we made the acquisitions with the purpose of of creating a broader portfolio of offerings that allowed us to really discover, manage, secure, and um, and really manage the everywhere workplace. So that we there was a strategic purpose behind bringing all these companies together. So from a product standpoint, it was real clear how everything fit, at least uh, from our perspective as an executive team. Um, but from culturally, people were coming from lots of different angles. So you know, we needed to make sure that we were really bringing everyone together. So yes, it started with an internal perspective and how we, you know, saw ourselves as a common purpose, but we also needed to make sure that we had a platform by which we were uh, communicating that to the outside world as well. Uh, so it didn't become a smorgasbord of stuff coming together, but a real strategic value proposition back to our customers. So from my view, I was like, as CMO, we got to bring us together as one company. And then that will allow us 
more quickly to bring that message to the outside world. So the conflicts really came in and the way we tackled it really was to have cross-functional team of people coming together to determine our purpose, right? To understand the different perspectives of the of the various companies that were coming together to create one purpose that we could all stand behind. It was really a genuine, authentic view of the world uh, from an inside out uh, viewpoint. So not an easy thing to challenge. Bring all these different groups together from different, you know, would would be silos of the company together. And at what point does this become like you are going to do a brand overhaul? I think that's a lot of CMOs face, certainly when they sometimes come into a role, certainly when you're in fast growing companies yep. where yep. you know maybe your growth outpaced your branding or your branding just needs to change because you're not the startup you once were anymore. So how do you yeah. approach that and, and what can other marketers do to have a successful rather than a frustrating brand overhaul? Yeah. Yeah. And look, I, you know, I I really see myself truly as a growth mindset. CMO, which I love the chase of a deal. I like to help sales get to their number. I'm like all about, you know, how do we get to growth? Um, So, you know, a brand overhaul isn't necessarily like my life's ambition for a lot of CMOs are like, you know, hey, do we want to tackle that, you know, hairy beast right there? But I knew given yourself like a branding first CMO, there's different. No, 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 not at all. Actually, I I really see myself as a, a growth marketer first. And, you know, that's a whole nother dialogue, which we can talk about. But, you know, I believe truly that marketing has a massive impact in companies' ability to grow um, and achieve revenue objectives from a pipeline and a bookings perspective. So like I wake up every day with the mindset of like, how can we help sales meet their number? How do we get to the target? With that said, with what we just went through in a really short period of time, we had a bit of an identity crisis. Like strategically, we knew why we were doing the things we were doing, but we had to be able to have a platform by which we could communicate that as, as one company. So. Yeah, it became real obvious to me probably 30 days into the job that the first thing I had to do was tackle this this purpose, right? Who were we as a company and what was that going to mean to the inside world and the outside world? So that's where we we got a cross-functional team of people together. I actually worked with a, a brand agency called Moving Brands who helped kind of guide us through a process. Um, and I it wasn't... What was cool about it is like, I wasn't going to be some CMO in the back corner, like coming up with a brand statement that we like delivered to the world that said, here we are. I knew that was going to be a failure. We had to bring people along with us. So it was a real hands-on, get our hands dirty as people from all the walks of life in these various acquisitions, determining who we were going to be. And through that process, especially in this time where it was such massive movement to the everywhere workplace, right? Where people are working from everywhere, every time zone, you know, in the, in the crazy world that we just were in the midst of, like we were really the company that was going to make the everywhere workplace possible possible. And we could stand by that, right, with our brand promise, um, which is, you know, we manage every device, no matter where people are working on those devices, we're able to, to discover them, to manage them, to secure them, make sure in this world of security threats, we could secure those devices and provide service and making sure that our customers had an amazing experience. And look, the employee experience became number one 
during this process. Like regardless of where people are working from, they need to have an amazing experience with what they're working on and what they're working with. And what we decided as a, as a, as a company really was we were the ones that were going to make that possible and put the employee experience first and make the everywhere workplace possible. So, so, so for, for quick tips for anyone doing yeah. what was like, right. what was the smartest thing you ever did during this process of brand overhaul? Was there anything that you're like, Oh yeah, I'm glad I did it that way. <laughs> well, first thing is I think having a, having a, uh, a, a third, a third party, sort of a neutral third party agency be involved in the process, I think is really important um, because they, they bring some real, best practices to how you proceed with this as a model. Okay. I, I, I so that's number one. Um, number two is, uh, and I think a lot of CMOs make this mistake. I shouldn't say a lot, but I've seen it um, where it's like, we have to emergency. We have an identity crisis. We're going to go in the back room. We're going to figure out what we're going to be. And we're going to come out and tell everybody. I, I think that's the biggest mistake you can make. Yes. It takes longer because you got to bring people along. But you're better off by bringing more perspectives to the table to get to the real heart of who you are as a company. Um, so it's not just a marketing exercise. It's really a company exercise to get to the brand, to get to the brand that really makes you unique and who you, who you really are and what you stand for. So, you know, I think CMOs just have to really lean into that and take the time and effort to bring people together on that journey. And then I think it starts again, inside out in terms of the communication. So, you know, the first thing some companies like to do is all of a sudden we're going to go X. External, right? We're just going to start delivering the message. We're going to say who we are. We're going to build this like really fun, creative platform. And um, they forget that it starts actually internally. And I think that that people, you know, I, I really believe in the human elements of marketing, you know, and I think it starts with the people. So if you get them engaged and have, have your um, employees be a part of the process, you're going to have a much better outcome as, as that message reaches the customers. Well, and which, which actually brings up an interesting question, which is how do you, if you have this unique situation of you're expanding through acquisition, there's mm -hmm. I, it's like four companies coming together as a, as a CMO, you're also just a manager of people. And yeah. I assume there's four different marketing uh, departments coming together too. So how do you manage that as it may be a unique challenge of just the people situation of, you know, different groups, different perspectives, maybe equally talented, maybe uneven in the talent from mm. marketing forward organizations or not. How did yeah. you try to bring those groups together? Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really great question. Um, so first of all, I, I was very new to the company when this all happened. So I had a very open and fresh perspective on the talent that we were bringing into the organization. So, um, and we needed to make sure we had people that had perspective from all of the companies, right? Because I really, I value that. I value the point of view. All the reasons why we're acquiring companies is because of the success that they had had, right? And it was going to make us a more valuable company. And the people are what made that happen. So, you know, I had established my own structure in terms of what my organization was going to look like. And I did that through the process of meeting all of these various people and trying to figure out what people were going to go into which roles. So, um, so it, it was, it was very open-minded. I was like, who are the right people for the right roles at the right moments? And we had to do it through, you know, really building that marketing strategy together. So once I figured out like what my structure was going to be, 
evaluated the various team members that were coming from the organization, figured out who was the right fit for the right roles. And then we created, just like I did with the brand, we created a marketing purpose together. So we took our, our overall brand, you know, what we're going to do with the first thing was to establish a um, purpose-driven brand. Uh, then we were going to build a growth model for our company. So we were really a predictive engine of pipeline growth. And then we we're going to put the customer experience um, at the forefront of everything that we did. So uh, once, once we kind of figured out what the organization looked like, who were the right people to be a part of that, we created our mission for mar- the marketing team together. So same kind of similar process by bringing, establishing a brand. I did that establishing this marketing team as well. So I have people from the acquisitions that are part of the leadership team. I have people that have been with Avanti for a long time that are part of the marketing team. And we also pulled people from outside the organization, brand like from any of the organizations, just people that were new talent that we could bring in. So we really have, like I said, the sort of a melting pot of perspectives that were that were brought around the table. It makes sense that. As, as you get, you kind of align on your purpose, you align on your direction. I like the three things you, you, you said as a very clear direction, but then you've got to, you know, upgrade a lot of assets of the company. I mean, we're talking about websites, social media, maybe there's some video, maybe there's employment, employee engagement campaigns. How do you tackle all of that stuff when you're still relatively new? It sounds like you did a good yeah. Listening. You synthesize that, you gave a direction, but now you just got to make a bunch of stuff. It may be a type of industry that typically isn't like a prolific branding or right. marketing industry uh, yeah. like cybersecurity. Yeah. Yeah. So um, first of all, we, we made a, a decision as a leadership team that we were a branded house, not a house of brands, right? So we were going to be Avanti. The challenge of doing a brand overhaul is that the same position that gives you clarity internally doesn't necessarily translate into that same level of clarity externally. So I want to know, how did this brand realignment actually impact the everyday creation of marketing content and messaging? We we acquired a lot of brands, but we were one brand, one company, which is Avanti. So one of our North Star goals that we've made at executive team level is that we are one company with one purpose. And we were going to measure the success of that at the company level, right? So once we, and I'm going to get to the answer specifically, your, your answer your question, but there was a bigger thing that had to back that up. It couldn't be just the marketing team taking a bunch of collateral and putting it in a production and be like, here you go. Here's the, you know, it's now all rebranded. There's a fundamental question. Like, what are we? Are we what one are we? So, or are we something yes, else? Yes, yes. So once we established we're one and this is our purpose and everybody in the organization will now rally around that purpose, then it became a lot easier to get that flywheel of all the content and materials being updated to reflect that. Now, it wasn't an easy process. We, you know, we, we had, we are slowly and not slowly, actually, we've done it really quickly, but we've, um, uh, all the websites that we acquired, we just pulled all the content into Avanti.com. Um, we've, uh, we've, um, minimized and limited those sites, but we had to do that without impacting our organic search, uh, uh, right. Uh, credibility with our organic search. So, but once we decided that we were a house, a branded house, it just became a machine. Everyone's like, all right, we're going to get behind Avanti. We're going to rebrand everything. We're going to rebrand our messaging. We're going to unify on Avanti.com. Our campaigns are going to have one 
one set of look and feel to all of our marketing campaigns that hit the market. And we became, you know, it sort of became a, a just, you know, a determination that that's what we were going to do. Now, I still have moments where I show up at QBRs and I see someone with a, you know, a PowerPoint presentation that's not quite in brand. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I just, this happened last week. I sent a little I am saying, hey, dude, like, you know, I want to help you get to quota, but you got to, you know, get rid of that, that template first. So, you know, there's still those moments where we, we find that happening. But, but I think for the most part, it became a real, um, fairly smooth transition to get everything into production once we had alignment on we were going to be this at the executive team level. And then that became a trickle out effect to everybody else. Plus we ran a internal um, uh, contest uh, to really get our employees to adopt and align to the brand strategy. Absolutely. And I, I want to get to that contest, but, but first I want to talk about one of the outputs, which doesn't always happen after a brand overhaul is you did a sort of data driven thought leadership report that I think came after came out of this new positioning, which really talked about, you know, sort of the everywhere workplace. So talk about yeah. one, you know, a lot of times people are doing branding, they're not thinking data reports related to them. Right. Or different, different divisions, like, yeah, we're doing the white paper. But two, yeah. connected that, why did you think a data study or a data report was an effective way to amplify your brand? And why did that come as an outgrowth of the branding process? You know, not just some other, uh, you know, marketing initiative that has nothing to do with the brand. Right. Yeah. It was, it's directly connected to it. So, so look, we, we think we have, we have to, we believe that what we do um, and the point of view that we bring to market is one that's unique, right? Like making the everywhere workplace possible and how we're going to stand behind that. But we believed as a marketing organization that we needed to have data to support that point of view um, and to validate it, right? To, 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 you know, shape kind of how we were messaging this and also have real data and facts that support um, our perspective in the world. And we could take that out to create a unique point of view. So instead of just, you know, saying, staking claim that like, Hey, this is what we believe. We really did a third party, um, research report that gave us some real credibility on the topics that we were going to talk about. Um, so we did this, what we call the everywhere workplace report. It's, um, a survey of over we've done by a third party independent 6,000, um, uh, uh, people that we reach over 6,000 um, from 10 different countries around the world, just gathering information around what the everywhere workplace means, like the impact of the change of, of work and the reality of what people are facing and the impact that's having on employees in the workforce today globally around the world. So that that report became, and we've done two versions of this um, so far, we're on our second version of it, um, but that report really gave like, you know, meat, substance, structure to our ability to be able to kind of bring that bring that brand out to market and our ceo who's doing um jeff abbott who's doing town halls as we speak he's going around to um our internal offices and doing town halls inviting people back into offices um he's using that report at, in, internally to talk to people about the changes that are happening with the workforce and and how you know the impact so it's not just an external thing we use it as something we stand by to reinforce that brand internally as well and how do you um, make that report meaningful? I mean, we're at, at our agency, at top agency, we're our primary market research company. We do a lot of these reports and surveys. Yeah. Yep. One yep. of the yep. problems that a lot of companies face um, that, that we have to address too, is that you do these monolithic reports. They can be... Yep. And there's a lot of great nuggets buried in there, 
but it's also how someone going to find that nugget, you know, how's it going to find the story that's really compelling. And I think you, you did some good things in pulling out what you felt was the most interesting things, but how do you sort of, you know, do the report and kind of release it and it's out there and yes, you have a nice report, but actually have something meaningful and stories and things that pull from it to, to, to tell the story or ladder to the brand values that you want to ladder. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're using it everywhere, right? We, we're, we use it as, you know, a clearly a core asset that we're using to, but then we're pulling tons of bite-sized chunks of content where we use to on our social, we use it in our, our, our um, campaign strategy. So we're really, we deploy what we call precision demand and account-based experience demand strategies. So it's solely based on accounts and it's solely based on what, how our, customers are responding to what we're delivering to them. So say someone's, um, you know, searching online around um, trends in the workplace or something, right? We will serve up stats from our report to them proactively, right? So we're extracting some content and delivering it up to, uh, up to them during the process, the buying process. So you're actually using parts of that, like very common in a report. You either you yep. segment it, you could segment it by sector or vertical. You could segment it by use case. You could Correct. segment it by geography, or you could take it one step further, which is you could release different versions of the report, right? Here's the APAC report. Here's the LATAM report, or here's the you know financial services report. You can do that, but you're actually taking it one step further where you're saying different bits of information on their journey as a customer might be served up because they're more likely to be interested in this or that. Correct. They're using that right. content, really dynamic targeted content um, for people. That's right. In your pipeline. That's right. Yep. And we're, we're doing that through our precision demand um, model that we've deployed within the, the marketing team. Um, so, you know, look, I, I think it, 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 what's, what is important is that you have data that people are going to care about. That's going to get them interested in, and in, you know, what they're looking for. Right. And that's what I go back to like the human experience in marketing. You know, there's, you'll take 15 CMOs and 15 CMOs have different problems that they're dealing with. Right. Um, and we're all humans sitting in the seats. Uh, it's not all one note. We learn from each other. We grow from each other but we all have different pains and issues that we're dealing with in any one moment. And I think that applies to anyone that's, that's working in a seat in their job, in their role. So, you know, I don't think there's one note of information that you can provide to people. I, I think you create a platform of messaging. We call them our value driver messages. So we have a tiered approach to our, to our strategy. So we have our overarching brand, which is the everywhere workplace. We have this report that's, that substantiates that position with a lot of different data that comes out of that report. And then the next layer down of our campaign strategy is what we call our value driver messaging. So that's all about, you know, different, um, different markets that we're going after. There's different business outcomes that we can deliver to those buyers. Um, and we hypothesize which customers we think may have which problems. And depending upon how they respond to our campaigns, we may put them into a different value driver because they're not responding to that one or they're not showing intent for that particular um, problem or, or, or area of concern. So that's kind of like how we hierarchy and, but it's all about the person at the end of the day who we're marketing to, we don't believe in there's kind of one note that's going to connect with everybody. And what are typical value value drivers? What are, what are like, yeah. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So we call, um, we call it your map, your cybersecurity journey. So manage, automate, and prioritize your cybersecurity journey. And from that, we actually have, 
four different major solutions that we um, that we offer to our customers that allows them to do a much be effective in how they actually manage through their cybersecurity challenge that's out there. So we market to the actual problems around how you understand the whole cybersecurity journey that customers are facing. And all the content is aligned to like how you can map, you know, how you have a map or a solution to that cybersecurity problem. So that's just one. And right now we have three different ones that are in the in market. The other one is about the employee experience and the challenge around that. Um, and then we have one around sort of gaining access and control of your IT assets. So none of them are about individual products necessarily. They all support the everywhere workplace and the overarching tone uh, and message that we're delivering on the brand. Um, so we we try to kind of create a hierarchy of brands, the brand supporting material, which is this everywhere workplace report. And then value drivers have their own kind of core content that we use to support those as well. And one thing that's really interesting with the data report, you actually did an everywhere workplace challenge. Right. To- thousands of employees of Avanti around the world. Talk about that because I I don't often necessarily see a company embrace almost a, what would typically be done more by like the the human resources department, right? Right, right. Yeah. Culture building activity or engagement building activity, but you're actually tying this to the data report, tying this to your brand overhaul. Talk about why that was important. And also it it, it seems like a, 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 a sort of repeatable model in prioritizing employee or team member engagement in a lot of the things that the company's doing overall, even from a marketing or branding perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, I mean, it was particularly important for us because we, um, you know, bringing all these employees together. And I I think, you know, I, I, I've done that really every company I've worked at, but particularly here, um, in, in, in Avanti, where we're having lots of people come together and we needed a common purpose. But what we did was we did a brand battle, we called it. So when we launched the brand, we actually did an internal launch first um, before we did an external launch. And we had a brand battle. So the each executive team member, which I'm a lucky lady to get be a part of the Avanti executive team, but each one of us, we, we, we participated in the battle. Um, and we wanted to win this battle. It became like an internal competition led by the executive team. And we had challenges that we put out to our employees um, over a week period of time. Like one challenge would be take a picture of your everywhere workplace. Uh, what does your everywhere workplace look like? And post it on your social media or post it on our internal internet page. Um, and whoever, um, whichever team posted the most and had the most likes and engagement and so on, won for that day, right? Got a certain amount of points. We had a point system um, that we all worked towards. So um, another one would be like, what does the everywhere workplace mean to you? And, you know, we would go online and talk about like what the everywhere workplace means to you. So we had all these different challenges every day um, that we put out to our, our employees. So they started to, to really get engaged with the content. Um, and we had the remarkable is is just just seeing a little bit of the stats that it seemed like, I mean, this wasn't like, you know, you have, I think probably close to 3000 employees and Mm -hmm. this is a high percentage rate, right? I I, I see here around half or more than half. Yes. It's hard to get anyone to do anything for, you know, fill out your, fill out your uh, health benefits form that you need, (laughs) which you you need to do. It's hard to get half. So how did you do that? And that, that seems remarkable. Yeah, especially, you know, again, when we were sort of people are a little like skeptics still like, okay, who's this Avanti company I got to go work for? Like, I kind of want to go back to my like, 
you know, my smaller company where I, you know, I could just have those like strong relationships. We wanted to establish those relationships and connect everybody. So look, I think again, we, yes, we had over 50% of our employees, just over 50% actively participate, which means that we're posting pictures. They were commenting, they were responding and they had points associated with themselves. So over 50%. And, and by the way, we did a, um, a team challenge. So it was like the marketing team against, you know, the various parts of the organization it was a team challenge, but it was also the individual, like who's the individual that could be the most represent rep, most representing the brand. Um, so there was an individual and a team. And look, I think it started with, with having a clear purpose, right? That people go, Oh, I get that. That actually kind of feels like me because I didn't do it in me, meaning the CMO did not do it in a back corner. We did it with a collaborative group of people. Right. So they're like, I can see myself in that. That feels like a purpose to me. And then we made it really fun. Like I, I posted a picture with myself, my desk with my feet up. We, we, we sent everyone like really fun socks and, you know, some tchotchkes. I, I, I opened, um, a, um, my socks with my kids in my kitchen and my daughter was cooking like bacon in the kitchen while my other daughter was like helping me open this package. And like, it was the everywhere workplace socks, you know? So, so, you know, as an executive team, we just tried to have fun with it too. And it got other people to really engage in the brand battle. So I'd say executive level engagement is important. Having a contest where people can feel like they can, you know, be a part of something. Um, and then having it be like a brand purpose that people can really believe in, you know, that feels like them, even though they might not be fully on board, they can start to identify with like, yeah, that feels like something I want to be a part of. The great thing about getting engagement from your internal team, especially for large organizations, is that if you get your own team excited, it's contagious to the many other stakeholders you need to influence. But how do we engage all members of our team and also avoid the subconscious biases that create walls instead of bridges? This isn't, this isn't your first, first, first CMO rodeo. Yeah. Um, and a topic that you've talked about and, and written about is, and especially for International Women's Day, is this idea of sort of the theme was break the bias and the bias that either it's conscious or it's 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 subconscious bias that limits um, whether it's the uh, career growth, whether it's the opportunities, whether it's just you know, uh, business interactions of women in the workplace. So as a marketing leader, as a woman, um, how has that affected you as you've started to, you know, manage, you know, hundreds of of people, um, how has that influenced you and what should other CMOs take away from that? Yeah, I love this question. So thanks for asking it. Um, so listen, I was I, I'm a I'm a second generation female CMO. My mother was um, head of marketing at a, a little company that people might know called Kronos. Uh, it's now UKG, uh, and this was at a time when I was young. You know, I was before I was ten years old, and it was a, a time when women weren't necessarily sitting around the boardroom, right? They they and 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 my mom was. She had a seat at the table with. Uh, Mark Ain, who's one of the most amazing entrepreneurs and, and founders of, of, of a company. Um, and, and so what, what's interesting from growing up with a female leader at that time is I didn't see gender, right? I, I, I was, um, my mom would bring things to the table, around the table, and she would tell me about decisions she was making or challenges that she was facing. And she would let me into that. And there was never like a, 
this man did that or this, you know, it was never a gender discussion. It was always just stuff that was going on. And she wanted my point of view on it at a really young age. And what's interesting about that is I was always on the edge of my seat. I couldn't wait for dinner time because I wanted to hear what was going on and give my perspective on it. Where my sister, who I have one sister, she's older, her name is Amy. She uh, could care less. She was totally uninterested. And she went on to become a school teacher and she could teach a tree how to read. She's a special needs teacher and she is the most amazing teacher and she loves her career. So it's, 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 just it's interesting how you know perspective that you have as a as a youngster can kind of form and shape your perspective as an adult and so for me it it became um i am i'm aware of it obviously because i work with so many women um and men who acknowledge this is a real issue and a challenge in the workplace but for me i just i i never allow i never even gave it permission because i didn't have that perspective so i think i think what what i'm now, you know, when I talk to women in the workplace, like I, I mentor women and, and I had a um, conversation real recently with a woman who was like, you know what, I'm, I, I, you know, I don't think I can do this job anymore because it's not flexible enough and I'm having a baby. I was like, are you good at your job? Yeah, I'm good at my job. Well, what do you need to make it work for you? And she told me what she needed. And I'm like, if you're valuable and you know what you need, you go ask for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Go ask for it. Go make it happen. There's no reason why there's any barrier. Um, go do it. So she she did. And she, you know, she's now still working there. And they gave her a raise. They gave her flexibility because she's a really valued employee. Another woman I was speaking with just a couple of days ago, she's like, you know, someone just um left their position. And I think, you know, I, I don't think I I should go for that job. I, I just never saw myself in that VP role. Why? Why? What, what's limiting you? Well, I took five years off while I had my my kids so that, you know, no, there's there's this gap and they won't think I'm valuable enough. I'm like, do you think you're valuable enough? Yes. Then go for it. Go make it happen. So, you know, I know these issues are real, but it's sometimes in our mindset that we create that instead of just letting down those walls like refusing to allow that to be barrier and just kind of go going for it. So easy for me to say where I kind of had an upbringing of a, you know, mindset. Yes, yes, totally. So, you know, I find it very important to try to be role models to other women that are, you know, really facing those challenges, but I don't want them to like allow it ever to stop them from being what they, what they want to be. And, and do you have any, any perspective or thoughts on, you work for a, a global organization now. It's a global company. How those cultural differences play into that? We we do a lot with also employee engagement and and there's when when you have global companies, there's different views of like what is decorum around the office. Yes, yeah. Act and it can be very different in certain cultures, perspectives, yeah. and everything. And and whenever those things conflict, which is you're trying to be open to culture, you're trying to to do that, but yet there may be a certain interaction that, you know, for instance, we, we've encountered this with some of our clients and asked us to help solve where, you know, men in certain areas interact with women in a certain way. And they perceive that as different as if they were interacting with men and they're not aware of this. And there may be cultural things, more deep rooted things than just the, what's going on in the office. So have you ever encountered that? And totally, totally agree. Yeah. I, could, I couldn't agree more. Look, I think, so I made the, <laughs> I made a classic, classic error earlier on in my career, I, I was, um, 
uh, leading up a team of product marketers. And I had a whole, we acquired a company that was based in the Netherlands. And um, I had several men that were working for me that were, that were, that were Dutch. And I am, if you can't tell from this conversation, I tend to have a lot of energy and I'm like, you know, very yeah, vocal. I, people and, say this, uh, since they, would, they would call us over there. They would call us like, we're very American. You're very yes, American. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I get, this, I get the same thing. So, oh, so I was so excited to meet this new team, right? I go, I go to our office in, and, 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 you know, in Amsterdam and I'm like super excited about meeting all these people and I'm being normal me. And it was like, oh God, who is this lady? And what is she, you know, who does she think she is? And I could tell the vibe, like they were trying to fake it. But I kind of knew I'm like, oh, I'm, this is not good. So, um, I, I, you know, I had to recover from that. And how I recovered from it was I needed to listen and learn and understand the point of view of others. And I think that's so important in leadership. It's like seek to understand and then to be understood, especially with cultural differences. So now, you know, I do, I try to do, um, you know, I try to just listen and learn and understand other perspectives so that, you know, I think the best leaders are able to stretch, you know, you're, you're true to yourself always, but you're able to stretch for what other people need from you to allow them to be their best self. And, you know, it took me a while to learn that <laughs> as a, as a leader, but I think it's a really important attribute. And and I, I take that with cultural differences as well. You know, it's, it's real and it's, it should be, um, should be really uh, celebrated, right? The, the differences, but it's up to me to learn and understand them so I can stretch myself to connect better. And, you know, I had many missteps early on in my career before I learned that. That's the famous line from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. As a marketing leader, it's not just about bringing out your own best performance, but rather the performances of those around you. So now you've got your shiny new brand. You've got a strong, aligned team in place. How do you actually get your message into market? You're, you're a CMO of a B2B company. There's certain channels that B2B companies do, and I'd like to maybe your, your quick 60-second thoughts on some of these channels. Important, not important, how do you approach? And then we'll kind of maybe end on the final thought. So, so first one, analyst relations. I go to the Avanti website. I see, you know, Forrester reports. I see other things. Important, not important, overrated, underrated if you're a... Um, Very important for credibility, especially when you're trying to unify a platform strategy and, you know, one set of products that you're bringing together. The analysts have to understand your strategy, where you're heading, um, because they can become a, you know, a friend or not so much front. Uh, so very, very important to an overarching strategy for sure. And then and what is, is it to be friendly or unfriendly? What's the, um, what uh, helps determine uh, that decision? What do you think? Constant, constant engagement, opening up to what you're thinking before you do. So they know they, they're allowed to give their point of view into your strategy and where you're heading. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not the, the classic, let's show up and tell them everything we're doing and have them go, no, we don't agree and not be able to have a voice into where you're going and where you're heading. And you know, I believe analysts have great po point of views and really perspective that need to be valued. And we have to listen and understand where they're coming from so we can connect better to our customers. And once you do that and you really take in what they're saying, um, and it doesn't mean you have to do hundred percent of what they're suggesting, but you at least need to listen, um, in the spirit of doing a better job for your customers. 
Um, and then they become, you know, friendly, right? They kind of understand. They always have to be neutral. <laughs> They're not, you know, it's, it's, uh, they have to be careful in terms of what they advocate for. They have to be genuine and true, but the more you open up to them, the more they engage with you, the better off you'll, you'll be. Second marketing channel, virtual events or events to virtual events. We're doing more of them now in this pandemic, post pandemic world, virtual events. Yeah. Um, overrated, underrated. Uh, okay. How do you, how do you maximize those? Um, I think I'm neutral on this one. I, I think it needs to be, uh, that's too conservative of an answer, but it, look, I think virtual events has to be a part of a bigger event st- strategy. Um, people are starting to get back in person. Uh, for Avanti, we're doing a 10 series roadshow, global roadshow, um, supplemented with virtual events. So I think it's really about hybrid, right? In person and online and giving people choice and options. Okay. Uh, third marketing channel is just rapid response PR. You're in cybersecurity. There are breaches all the time. There's things happening. People are in the news that can either be, you know, causing lots of demand suddenly because everyone wants to avoid that situation. It could be just an opportunity to be in the conversation. Um, rapid response PR, overrated, underrated, or how do you approach? Oh, it's it's you got to do it. It's it, you know it's so central to. Um, you know, your ability to be able to respond to crisis and things that are happening, uh, good, bad, or ugly in, in the market, but you need to be able to respond quickly is so important. So I have a team of folks that love the rush of the rapid response. They like live for it. And those people, you got to grab hold of them and make sure they feel empowered uh, to be able to do what they need to do to respond in, in those situations. Um, it's not for everybody. You know, some people just like, I don't want that pressure, but if you can find people that love it, it's a great thing. And for us, you know, we always put our customers and our employees first in any decision we're making when it comes to rapid response initiatives. Like, you know, we always look through the lens of our employees or our customers every single time. Uh, And then the final thing, maybe for for a little bit more time is is just, I'd love to hear you've talked about, um, in fact, when you were hired, sort of human customer-centric marketing. First thing, we do something called the glossary, which is what is human customer-centric marketing? What does that mean? Mm. Well, I, I think it means that you put the human, the being, the, the, the psychology of an individual um, in your mindset when you market. Uh, there's not one point of view, one perspective, one note by persona or by business versus consumer. I think the lines have all blurred there. And I think technology has made it possible for marketers to market to humans. Um, so, you know, I say B2B is dead, B2C is dead, and B2H is where it's at, which is business to humans. And how does that influence? Is, is there a campaign you could think of, whether at Avanti or your prior work, where if you if you had been a B two B marketer and it wasn't dead, you would have approached it this way. But now you're a B two H, B two human marketer, and so it actually impacted the campaign. Yeah, I, look, I, I think I think in in the past my lens was much more persona. Right, you're this industry, you're this persona, you give them this message. Right, it's simple. This industry, this persona, this message. I, I, now I don't. I, yes, we need to understand the industry. We need to understand the big trends on the persona, but that's not enough. You have to be able to respond 
to how an individual is engaging or reacting to what you're putting out into the market. Um, and that's really the difference. That's the big change that's happened, um, especially over the last five to 10 years, is the, you know, the data and the information, the technology allows you to humanize an experience, a buying experience, and not in a creepy way, but in a real value way, right? Where you're bringing value to their, to the experience of whatever it is they're buying or looking at. And it starts with this everywhere workplace report, it, you know, taking nuggets of that, that we serve up to individual buyers down into our value driver messaging, not easy to do. Um, but it's, you know, we call it precision demand marketing. And it's really about, you know, understanding the, the specific person and what they're, what they're um, responding to or the pains that they're having in the moment. Well said, um, Melissa Pulse, uh, CMO of Avanti. Thank you so much for joining us. And maybe as, as a final thought, you know, for, uh, the next generation of CMOs out there, uh, the ones who maybe within the next five years want to reach the CMO position, um, they're looking at their next career move. They're looking at their next campaign. They're looking at data. They're, they're trying to figure out how to, how to walk the path that you've walked. Um, what would be your advice um, to them as they navigate this next five years? Mm, be bold, be confident, make, make big moves. You know, I, I think CMOs, have a seat at the table for a reason now, because marketing has a massive ability to be able to make an impact on company success. It's not just a cost center. It's not just something you have to do. Um, it's something that can make or break a company now. So if there, if you want to be a CMO, you got to lean into that. You got to own it, <laughs> right? If you're going to make those kind of statements, you have to be able to look in the whites of the eyes of the CFO and say, I got you. I'm going to spend your money in the right way and we're going to get the right kind of return for that money. So it takes being bold, being courageous, you know, having the guts to kind of put yourself out there and being okay. If you're going to fail and make mistakes, that's okay too, but you can't sit back. You got to be bold and go for it. So for Melissa Pulse, marketing is one part branding, one part team alignment, and one part tactical execution. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And once you're understood, drive your message to each persona in each market at global scale. For Top CMO, I'm Ben Kaplan. Need to roll out a truly global marketing campaign? We're on the ground in more than 20 countries worldwide, and we'd love to hear from you. Email us, topcmo at topagency.com. Let's do it.